0: Thank you. Welcome to episode 22 of the False Neutral Podcast. With me, our co-host Garrett. Eric is possibly going to be joining us a little bit, so if you hear him drop in, he may just show up and start talking. Garrett, how you doing?
1: Uh, not too bad. It's Good. been a long time since the three of us have been together. Yes, it has. So I think it's been almost a month since the three of us. Maybe three weeks, something like that, but... I don't know feels like it uh yeah so i missed last week's episode i guess that cameron was on from the camden Tubbed podcast how did that go
0: uh the last two weeks and uh other than uh got some very polite feedback that um the couple of profanities that he dropped were not (laughs) welcome and i should have bleeped (laughs) them out and the uh the other uh, feedback I got was uh, two weeks ago. I thought, "Hey, let's have some fun." We tend to be kind of laid back, and I thought, "Oh, it'd be fun. We'll stick in some random sound effects just to liven things up." And they didn't go over terribly well. You know, we're, yeah. we're we don't have that that zany, wacky uh, morning zoo kind of feel right. to our post. You just can't be everything, so. We're, we're, we're not loud and,
1: and I guess rolling. we're the gentleman's podcast.
0: Yes. It's got, I have a, a podcast that I listen to that is, uh, uh, not a motorcycle podcast. It's, uh, uh, living Japan. And uh-huh. it's, it's a three of them. It's a native Japanese woman, uh, an American from Georgia living in Japan and a guy from Mexico City living in Japan. And it's an English language podcast about uh, life in Japan for foreigners and yeah. it's really fascinating. And I like it just because it's, I spend so much time involved in subjects that I'm interested in. It's nice to just have something that's just something that clears your head from all the things you think about every day. Right. But they are, they are like the nicest neighbors in your neighborhood that are always polite and soft spoken and they have fun and they talk and, it, but, I'm like, okay, we're much more like that than we are, you know, uh, Cleveland Moto podcast or something like that, yeah. where the, you know, the guys or are, Camden tubbed. <laughs> yeah. The guys are half drunk and, and yelling at each other. So it's right. like, you know what? You kind of just have to get a feel for what you do well and what you don't. And you just roll with it. So yeah, we are not going to have any more random soundboard clips that just pop up during editing. So. Uh, I got that message loud and clear. All well, right. I did have one person say they liked it, but
1: they were outvoted. Well, s- since I last talked to, in fact, I think it was just after the last podcast where it was the three of us, I was mentioning that I was going to be riding up to the mountains, My Weiss family, they have a cabin up on Mount Hood here in the northwest, and we we're going to be riding our motorcycles there. And I was excited about it. I was riding my TX750, and my friend has a, a DS7, which is like an RD250, you could call it. And then uh, my other friend, who doesn't have a motorcycle, I let ride the Transalp that I was borrowing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think you sent, sent us
0: some some pictures.
1: Right. And so we made it. But that's about all you could say <laughs> for the trip. We set off from Vancouver, which is just on the north side of Portland, Oregon. And by the time we made it the 10 miles south to the outskirt of Portland, heading up towards the mountains, uh, we already started having a problem with the Transalp, which is the last motorcycle I thought we would have a problem with. The you know It's a Honda. It's super well-maintained. Uh, and I was riding my TX750, which I've had for a couple years, but probably in the last eight years, it's had a total of 200 miles put on it. And my friend's very tired and very worn out DS7, um, you know, the combined age of all of these motorcycles, is like a hundred and something years. So <laughs> I, I'm not surprised that we did have a problem. I just didn't think it was going to be with the Transalp. So my friend was riding it and all of a sudden it loses power. Like, not all power. It would still ride, but it was like riding a mini bike on the freeway. And so we pulled over, and I thought for sure it was the carburetors, because it had been sitting for about seven years. And I didn't go through the carburetors when I fired it up, because when I did, after it had been sitting, it ran great. Um, so I figured for sure it was the carburetors. But we, we pulled over, and we sat for a little bit, went into a Minute mark, got some teas, and... We fired the motorcycles back up about 10 minutes later, and it ran perfect. Like nothing ever happened. So we're like, all right, let's see how much further we can get. So we made it about 30 miles, and it started doing the same thing. And by this point, we're about three quarters of the way to the cabin. And so we just kind of did the same thing, let it sit, cool off for a little bit, and it fired up, ran perfectly, and we made it to the cabin. Um, So, at this point, I was thinking it was probably some sort of electrical problem. Just something's getting warm, it quits working. And the TransAlp, specifically, it has two CDIs, one for each cylinder. And so, I was kind of leaning towards it being one of the CDIs that was starting to malfunction, and it was running on one cylinder instead of both. So, at any rate, we made it all the way to the cabin. And uh, once we got there, the throttle cable on my Yamaha broke. And so... (laughs) now i'm running on one cylinder the effectively the trans alps running on one cylinder uh so we i had to leave my yamaha there because it just wasn't going to make it back the trans Alp, they got it back home the same way that it got there just stopping periodically so at any rate i went up a few days later and picked up my yamaha that i left in the woodshed up at the cabin but It was such an ordeal. I was super pumped to go to the cabin and spend time riding motorcycles up there up around Mount Hood, but it was the biggest nightmare of a 60-mile ride.
0: So have you figured out what what was up with the the TransAlp?
1: Yeah, it was a CDI. Okay. And so interestingly enough, the early TransAlps, the late 80s uh, TransAlps, they mount the CDIs directly underneath the seat. And the electrical connectors are up at the very top of the CDIs, right where the seat touches them. And so over time, the seat just puts a little bit of pressure on those electrical connectors. And it ends up loosening or breaking the electrical contacts inside the CDI. And so a couple years later, after Honda identified the problem, they released or superseded the the mount that holds the CDIs, and it ends up lowering the, the CDIs about 5 millimeters, just enough room so that the seat doesn't put pressure on it. So I put one of those mounts on, replace the CDI, which luckily is cheap. Normally, CDIs for some motorcycles are just wildly expensive. If you can but, find them.
0: A lot of times yes. they're not even available for, you know, yeah. anything that's over about 5 or 10 years old.
1: Transalps, you can still get CDIs directly from Honda for 96 bucks. Hmm. So... Yeah, uh, threw CDI in it. And now it runs awesome. So we made it. My Yamaha, you know, it broke the throttle cables. Speaking of parts you can't get anymore, you can no longer get throttle cables for a Yamaha TX750. There are some throttle cables that the manufacturer says work for a TX750. And as I found out, they absolutely do not work. They're roughly the same shape. And roughly the same length, uh, but the length is critical on a cable, and and not the housing length um, so much as the like the actual cable itself. The difference so between that, the
0: housing and the and the right interior.
1: Yeah. So when I got these new cables, really excited to put them on, get the motorcycle back on the road. I realized that they're even with the adjustment as far out as you can get it on the cable. There's like three eighths, maybe even a half an inch of cable free play. And so literally today, just I wrapped up just before we got on this call, I was making on the lathe little aluminum spacers that where the cable fits into the holder on the carburetors. I just made a little what looks like an adjuster um, that just takes up that three eighths of an inch of space. And so I was able to make them work. But for a person that doesn't have a lathe and Tools to do that, they're really kind of screwed. When I mean, that's old motorcycles, though. Sometimes you just have to learn to make parts and keep them going. So,
0: well, I uh, I have uh, went ahead and bit the bullet and bought one of those little two and a half inch chopper speedometers for this CL 125. I got yeah. sick of messing with used old Honda speedometers and just thought I'll buy one from what I've read. Uh, it's a little difficult to put a six volt bulb in them, yeah. and they're pretty dim after dark, anyways. So, yeah. I may not even wire in the light. You know, it, it, I don't know how often I'm going to be w- riding this after dark the way it is, just because the electrics are so bad on them. The, yeah. All the lights are so dim. I, I'm not even sure I want to ride this thing after dark. <laughs> I also did do some research and, and a CL th- or a CB350 or 360 stator can be adapted. And then you have to go get a 12 volt flasher and a 12 volt, uh, you know, electrics, uh, voltage regulator and stuff like that. So I may, I'm toying with the idea of that, or I may just make it look nice, paint the tank and see if somebody else wants it the way it yeah. is.
1: I'm assuming you're opposed to putting like a Trail tech digital speedometer on it. Well I, I, I it I sounds can't, like
0: even if I wanted to, I can't until I put I've got 12 volt power source for it unless I,
1: I can because they run off of a watch battery and they'll run for about three years off of one. They don't re, really? they don't need any input uh, voltage hmm. but um, I, the backlight will work as soon as it senses wheel speed, which it just gets via its magnet the backlight will turn on, and so it'll run as long as it senses wheel speed. But it's only about a tenth of the brightness as it is when it's actually hooked up to a dedicated power source, which is still bright enough. At night, it's just fine. Just during the day, you can't really notice that the backlight's there. Um, But if you hook it up to a 12-volt source, and that could just be something as simple as a little external battery pack, um, it will run for a long, 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 long time. So that's what I have on my dirt bike and also a supermoto moto uh, that I have um, the supermoto I put a, a lighting stator in it and it runs off of the 12 volt and it's a lot brighter and I like it a lot more. Um, but like I said, you could just do that with a little standalone battery pack. Good to know. So, yep. And they're cheap too. I think they're like 70 bucks. So uh, the trail tech.
0: The, yeah. Like the vapor 70 bucks. Wow. I uh, thought they were like e- twice that price.
1: The endurance is the cheapest one and it's the limited functionality but it does do speed odometer trip um and a couple other small functions and uh street price is right about 70 80 right in there Hmm, okay um and then you can get the i think it's either called the vapor or the striker is the next one up and that one will do uh water temperature and rpm and some other things and it's like a little over 100
0: yeah i'm not i'm not interested in RPMs and water temperature on an
1: air-cooled... Yeah. Definitely not, not. water temp. <laughs> well, our
0: subject today is V4s. I was reading my latest copy of Rider Magazine, where they have a uh, uh, road test of the VFR-1200X, the Cross Tour 1200 V4 from Honda, and I was thinking got me thinking about V4s and and I thought you know that's really kind of a Honda thing but then I started thinking about how many V4 motorcycles there actually are and I realized that other than except for Kawasaki all of the the Japanese manufacturers have made at least one V4 touring bike, one uh-huh. V4 cruiser uh there's the uh Ducati's made the V4 Aprilia's mm-hmm. made a V4 and I thought you know in my brain I think oh yeah Honda's are you know V4s is synonymous with Honda and that's not the case because there's a lot of V4 motorcycles
1: out there right well historically Honda has done a lot with V4s however it's surprising how many manufacturers have a current V4. Not even that have just had one in their lineup at some point in time, uh, but currently there's quite a few V4s actually.
0: Um. Yeah. Because there's,
1: I don't know. Well, Yamaha has one with the V Max. Right. Right. they still make it. Um. Uh, Aprilia, obviously. The. Uh, the Honda. Uh, Honda does. Yeah, they um, got- do. I don't know about Suzuki or Kawasaki. Um, Suzuki doesn't. Kawasaki never did.
0: And uh, Eric has joined us. Welcome, Eric. We are in the middle of a conversation, actually just starting part of our conversation about V4 motorcycles. I was uh, commenting that I mentally think of them as being a uniquely Honda thing, but then when you think about the Aprilia, the... Desmos Sedisi, you know, everything from Suzuki Maduras and Yamaha Venture Touring Bike, uh, Royal Star. There's a whole lot of V4 motorcycles out.
2: RZ, RZ 500.
0: Well, that one's a, I I was thinking there's a lot of the, uh, a lot of the two strokes are Vs, but not really Vs because they're the twin crank. They're, they're kind Mm -hmm. of two banks of, uh two twin cylinder motors Siamese together and it's not quite the same thing as a as a single crank V engine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would in my mind I'll include them, but like we were just saying, um Honda really kind of has dominated the the V motors, but like we were saying a lot of manufacturers use them and there are currently quite a few being used. Um, so like Pete was saying, it is not a distinctly Honda thing. Um, lots of manufacturers use them.
0: And what people don't often realize is that Honda was not the first to make a V4 motorcycle. That they go all the way back to the thirties. Uh, Matchless made one that was called the Silverhawk. Uh, Pook made one that was a P800. The, uh... The thing is, the matchless was a very narrow angle v- V4. It was kind of like uh, the VW uh, VR motors. It was yeah. an 18 degree V with uh, a, one camshaft and a common head over all of the cylinders. And it had the biggest problem was it generated a, hot, a lot of heat that it couldn't dissipate because of that he- It was a, a big one-piece cast uh, cylinder that just had all the cylinders in one casting, and, and it was just it just got too hot on the rear cylinders. So yeah. they didn't make many of those. Uh, Pook, or Pook, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, they also made one, but it was really bizarre. It was like a hundred and... Forty-five degree V or something like that it was basically oh, yeah. a V, uh, an opposed four boxer motor, where the
1: slight angle with a it. slight <laughs> angle up,
0: which is just yeah. really bizarre because it screws up the balance of. For those of us, for those of you listening who aren't real familiar with motorcycle engines, the neat thing about a ninety-degree V motor is that it has perfect primary and secondary, or yeah, V4. Perfect primary and secondary balance. And what that means is if you look at a single cylinder bike, the piston's going up and down and the crank is going around and that just has all kinds of weight being thrown all over the place so it causes all kinds of vibration. Now, you can put counterweights on the crank equal to the weight of the piston and the connecting rod, but since one of them is going in a circle at a constant speed and the piston is going uh in one direction and is slowing down coming to a stop accelerating and then slowing down again twice every revolution they really don't do a great job of canceling out you have all kinds of other movements so the idea is oh let's let's put another piston next to it if you had like a uh, something like a Honda CB450 180-degree twin, you can have one piston going up, one piston going down, and, oh, that's going to cancel everything out, except you have another problem there, and that is the uh, pistons are are only traveling in line with the center of the crankshaft, and those weights kind of cross that center line and then go all the way out to the edge and back. So again, it doesn't work real great. And now it's kind of like two pedals on a really cheaply made bicycle. If you imagine stomping on the pedals, you're going to deflect the bottom of that frame as you kind of create a lever with one pedal pushing down. You're going to bend that one down and then you're going to bend the other one down and that one's going to pop up. That's what they call secondary or rocking couple vibration. So if you have a V4 you've got if it's a 180 degree crank meaning both the crank pins for each pair of cylinders is on the same part of the rotation you have none of that rocking couple and you have the two cylinders create for the whole 360 degree rotation of the crankshaft exactly the same amount of mass traveling in one direction as traveling in the opposite direction so They run really, really smoothly. Now, if you have something like a BMW Twin or a Goldwing, you have almost the same thing uh, because you've got the pistons and even like the valves and stuff. Everything is mirror image of each other. So you've got that same balance. Now, what you don't have is the secondary balance in a boxer motor unless you have four cylinder in, in a boxer twin. You don't have that because you still have the rocking couple. But if you have a v, uh, an opposed four boxer motor, you you can have that primary and secondary balance as well. So why you would take a inherently perfectly balanced boxer four and move the cylinders up just enough to totally screw up your balance, I don't get. And that's why they probably only made 500 and some odd.
1: Yeah, slash then you have to fit all of that extra space with that wide cylinder angle uh, into a motorcycle, which is also difficult when you have a 90 degree. You just take up a lot less space.
0: And the cool thing about a V4 is it's a very square motor. I don't mean bore and stroke. I mean, it's a very square shape to the motor. It's not as Mm -hmm. wide as an inline four, but it's More compact than a opposed four. It's, it's, uh, doesn't take up a whole lot more room than either like a Ducati V twin. You're just going to make it a little bit one cylinder wider or, uh, not a whole lot more space than a, uh, a parallel twin because you're just going to add some cylinders sticking out the front. So it ends up being very, very, uh, Mass centralized, which really is helpful. The problem is, I think, and the one thing that's really difficult is one, you have to water cool it because you cannot have an air cooled V4 and have any kind of effective cooling. Right. Uh, even though I know, uh, uh what was it? The Ducati Apollo, they made an air cooled, uh, V4 prototype in the early 70s that evidently <sighs> they claim, didn't have cooling problem. But they also, I think, had four separate heads. so It was a really wide motor. You really had to have water cooling before V4s were going to work well. And the other thing is, they're just ugly. You can't really have a classically beautiful, elegant bike with a V4 engine because they just look ugly. I don't know how else to say it. They're just a non-traditional enough shape that... I haven't seen any V4 that I went, wow, that is just a... Unless they had a full fairing on it, like a RC30, where you don't see the engine.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I really like the look of V4s. And I don't... I don't, I just came across this picture while I was snooping around. Um, AJS, is that a motorcycle manufacturer? Yeah. Or is that... The British one. Yeah. So, their V4 motor, it looks really complex and industrial, but it looks... Kind of cool, I think. It's air-cooled. Um, I don't know. Look that up and see what you think of that. <clears> oh, <throat> no, I, um, I
2: forgot all about the AJS V4. Yeah. Well, Pete, remind me, but wasn't, I mean, granted, it's a square four, not a V4, but wasn't part of the problem with aerial square four that it, it was air-cooled and the back cylinders got almost no airflow back there?
0: Uh, yeah. The the, the aerial uh, square four... Was deliberately kind of a
2: uh, offset a little bit or whatever, but
0: well, it was just low power. They really couldn't because yeah. it, it was a fairly big bike at the time that that was known as being a really nice gentleman's cruising and sidecar rig because it made a lot of power down low, but when you look at the the efficiency of its output to its size and. It, it, They had to be very careful how much power they would try to get out of it because of those cooling issues. Uh, Same thing with the matchless narrow angle V4 they had problems with.
1: Uh, It seems like something like the Apollo. If the front motorcycles come directly out horizontally forward and the rear cylinders are then going up vertically, it seems like you could get airflow to all of the cylinders, but even still... That's a lot of heat in a small area to dissipate through cooling fins and to not water cool it does uh, create some challenges.
0: Now, I did do some digging and found out that AJS later on did water cool their V4 because they had heating problem or cooling problems with it. That it was an early water cooled bike. A couple of other older V4s or, uh, yeah, V4s. Uh, it was really interesting, uh, in Czechoslovakia under the communists, uh, Jawa built a sometime, I'm gonna say, I'm going off the top of my head here, late 60s, uh, the Jawa may have been earlier, but Jawa built a V4 two-stroke with twin cranks, kind of like similar to the later Japanese V4s, uh, with rotary valves, carbs sticking out the side, And at the same time, or slightly later, CZ built a, uh, I think they called it the Type 860, which was a V4 four-stroke. So they, they really were kind of ahead of the game on V4 and then never did anything else with them. Because basically, I believe the government said, nope, forget it, go back to what you can build cheaply. We're not giving you any more development money. So it just, it was just a dead end, but Czechoslovakia could have been like, had some really cool V4s (laughs) if they hadn't been shut down by the communist penny pinchers.
1: Yeah, there are some super, super cool uh, aftermarket V4 two strokes that people make somewhere floating around the internet. There's a video and pictures of somebody that made a CR 500 based V4 Uh, engine. And so it's 2000 cc's. It makes something like 200 horsepower. And I got to imagine that it sounds pretty incredible. Um, I know there's a video somewhere. And so if people are listening uh, and they want to hear. I'm sure you can find it. Um, But it would be supremely cool to have an engine like that in a motorcycle, which is probably something similar to what um, like that Sutter MMX 500 motor is um but at 2000 cc it probably makes a horrendous amount of torque for a two stroke
0: and going through this when we're talking about balance thinking through this um one of the cool ways you can balance out an engine which is what Ducati did with their supermono was instead of having a extra cylinder at 90 degrees so that you've got the same amount of <coughs> mass always moving vertically and horizontally you can just put a reciprocating uh like a pendulum type reciprocating weight equal to the weight of the piston at 90 degrees which is what they did with the supermono they just simply took the where where the vertical cylinder would have been they just built in a kind of a little bump in the crankcase to put in a reciprocating weight that had a a crank pin to the crankshaft. So, they kept all that perfect balance with one cylinder, and uh, I believe uh, uh, BMW did that with the 800, where they had a reciprocating weight rather than a balance shaft that was turning with counterweight, you know, bob weights on it. They have a reciprocating weight that counteracts the piston, which is kind of really cool. But the interesting thing is, Honda came up with this perfect 90 degree, 360 degree crankshaft, beautifully balanced motor, and within one generation screwed it up and said, we're going to 180 degree crankshaft, which puts <laughs> the rocking couple back in there. And the reason they did it was because, one, people didn't like the sound of the original V4s. They had a, they had a kind of a really flat drone to them because, it was perfectly placed uh power pulses it it, it just sounded mm-hmm. like a like a sewing machine there was no character to the exhaust notes and and street customers didn't like it the other thing is on their race bikes when you were uh, kind of the same thing that uh uh Yamaha did when they went to the crossplane uh crankshaft or some of the big bang motors with the two strokes if you have really evenly placed power pulses, it's harder to tell when your back end is starting to step out. So if you have more power pulses packed in together and then a delay, you can tell that little bit of acceleration and deceleration in the rear wheel will help you detect when you're starting to slide so you can you your back end is more controllable when you make a whole lot of horsepower for the, you know, right at the edge of the tire's grip. So For racing 180 degree crank you don't care how it vibrates you just want it to be controllable and it was it was easier to ride fast on the street 180 degree crank just sounded better so all that theoretical talk about perfect vibration balancing that they came up with when they introduced the first saber and magna okay like one generation later forget that we're getting rid of it we're going to do what people like
1: and that's probably why you don't see V motors a lot on the street is just because of their inherent challenges with vibrations you see a lot of inline motors and they're easy to make <clears throat> the engineering is much more simple and I, they don't vibrate
2: i i think i think you, the the back part of that was 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 really more why manufacturers don't do it is yeah. that V4s are more complex and more expensive to manufacture they yeah. they actually may be easier to package um but from a cost standpoint, they are significantly more money. Um, and not to throw like a really ridiculous amount of money at it, but, uh, just look at modus and what they're having to charge for theirs. Now, granted that's sort of a, you know, a bit of a, uh, Vaporware kind of machine still at this point. Yeah, yes. it's yeah it, uh, bo- boutique vaporware. How's that? Uh, <laughs> but it sounds wonderful.
1: Yeah, well, isn't it based off of a small block? Small block Chevy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like an LS-based <laughs> yeah. motor with two cylinders uh, cut off of each side. They call it yeah. the baby block. Is yeah. that right? You know, speaking of that, I wish that they would put an engine like that on the uh, the Morgan instead of a V-twin. Uh, and I don't know if they put anything other than a V-Twin on a Morgan. But an engine like that, a V4, that seems like a better engine. It I wouldn't look right. I'll give you that. But it would probably make that little Morgan a hoot to drive.
0: Uh, if you go back and you look at last week's episode, I put a picture in the post of a uh, – I missed – I called it by the wrong name. It's actually it's like a JZR trike, which is kit built. But they, people have bought, built them with the ST1100 or ST1300, uh, longitudinal V4 motor Mm -hmm. from Honda in there. And to me, that just looks like a bucket of fun. That just looks like (laughs) a really cool three wheeler. Yeah. The uh,
2: the only problem, and, and I agree with you, Garrett, uh, it would be better with, I'd, I'd say, like an air-cooled Ducati V-Twin yeah. for a Morgan. But the problem is, is you don't really want to put too much more power, horsepower and or torque into that, because remember, that chassis is wood, and yeah. those are very thin tires. Um, so much more speed out of it and good point it goes from being something that's fun in a hoot to,
1: uh, oh my God, I'm going I just to died. die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I just died. As yeah. You're flying through the air. Yeah, no, I can tell, I, I can see that the Morgans, um, I think are more of like the experience of like, I don't know, s- s- like seeing it and, and driving at slow speed yeah. with the wind at your receding hairline and everything else, but. Uh, As my friend
2: friend Zach Bowman said uh, when he did a uh, cross-country drive with Alex Roy in one in 41
1: hours, the Morgan's a great fifth car. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, on the weird side of V4 motors, um, the Honda NR750, uh, oval Oval piston, piston? V4, eight rods. It, Weird design. I don't think it lasted that long. Well, Years. they
0: only, yeah, they built very few of the street models because they don't have a reason to exist. The only reason that they existed at all was because there was a four cylinder limit in a class that they wanted to build a V8. It's a V8 with, with four cylinder walls missing. Right. More so than a four cylinder bike. They just Which Siamese the cylinders seems- together
1: like a nightmare like to, I don't even know how you really uh, make a bore oval oh. yeah and then like I, I'm just thinking about getting rings on the Pistons too that was I the, mean it seems like it would be extremely difficult to do it and not stretch the rings or
0: the I know that getting the rings to seal was the biggest challenge that they had and yeah. it was I could see that there there was no great how do you keep ring
1: tension on a flat surface?
0: And and that's like why that. they had to they were like super critical on the exact shape, material, elasticity uh and, all that stuff. And there was no golden or, you know, uh, silver bullet that solved the whole thing. They just did it incrementally until
2: it was good yeah. enough to go into production. And, And and there's a reason why every single one of those engines was assembled by the Honda Racing Corporation, (laughs) because it took, you know, seven skilled engineers with 30 years of experience each to be able to put that together and actually be able to seal and run. And and I want to say there were only
1: 75 street bikes ever made, but that might be a little low. Yeah. Um, I wonder if they did they have to make uh, road going street bikes in order to like satisfy some sort of requirement that it's a production engine or something
0: no because that 750 was never raced it was the nr 500 was a 500 cc was the was the grand 750
2: was they they were trying to they wanted to homologate it for world superbike in the very early no ways i'm sorry because that was 80 well the nr i'm trying to remember was that 82 i thought it was just
0: corporate swag i thought they were just look what we can do
2: The Grand Prix bike that I think they tried to get, or he even did, Freddie Spencer rode, was early 80s, if I remember right. 82, 83 maybe? No, it wasn't 83, but 82 maybe. Um, And then the NR, which was a street bike, I think was late 80s, and that was something they did want to homologate for World Superbike, but it didn't work out. Now, I could be misremembering all that, but… That's what's tingling in the back of my brain on that one.
0: Uh, I okay, I'm just looking online here. I am mistaken. There was an NR750 endurance racer in the 1980s that was Mm. a a 750 capacity. That was their like, you know, there's 24 hours of Suzuka or eight hours of Suzuka bike. Um, Mm. and but the NR750, by the time they sold it to the public as a production bike. They had already stopped making any of their, their oval piston race bikes, Mm -hmm. which I remember at the time thinking, um, you know, this was 92, uh, that they, that they made that. They had already stopped, they had already admitted it was a dead end as far as racing and had moved on to other designs.
2: it was it was a dead end because of the FIA or FIM came out and said, "Yeah, all all bores must be round." Yeah, <laughs> um, which solved it real quick. And the other thing, and, and I don't know if you have it up there, Pete, but I seem to recall. Late eighties, early nineties, whenever it was on sale, it was like a forty or a forty-five thousand dollars motorcycle in like yeah nineteen ninety ninety two. So that's and like even at a, that
1: price, they're probably losing money on it as oh, complex sure. as that engine but, is. Yeah, so that's like a eighty or 90000
2: 90, $90, dollars machine today. So yeah.
1: Well, let me see here.
0: Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation, calculator. In, in, inflation calculator from. 1992 to today, fifty thousand dollars. Then is eighty five thousand nine hundred dollars today. So, uh, whole, whole <laughs> so it makes a Modus look cheap. Yeah. Although, although Motus, how much anyways? is how
2: much is the new V4? The the uh, oh the Grand Prix bike, the, the Grand Prix street bike. Uh, it's one hundred and forty five thousand dollars, and I think then if you want the race kit to unlock it out of one hundred and forty horsepower. That's another fifty or sixty thousand dollars.
0: Okay, so this was is that a, a this was a this was comparatively
2: cheaper?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, is the the race bike is that a four or a five cylinder? The four. current.
0: The it current is one is a
1: four. Okay. okay. They the first, did, they one, did
0: have a five cylinder that they raced for a while.
1: Yeah, in the, was in that the 990- RC two 211- eleven. V, yeah, that in the yeah. nine ninety
2: era when they first came when they first transferred from two strokes to four strokes in oh, two? 2003? something like that. Um, I had ceased caring about racing by that time. Yeah, yeah, that, that's <laughs> they, that was nine ninety uh, the nine ninety V five, right, Jess, which was its own unique engine.
0: And yeah. they, they've done some weird things with the five cylinder. And the I mentioned it last time the uh, MVX 250F three-cylinder that in order to have that perfect balance like a V4 they use, I think a 20 or 21 millimeter solid uh, crank pin on the the single vertical cylinder it's just gigantic it's 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 like a paperweight that they put in with this giant bearing so that it would weigh that one piston and piston pin would weigh the same as the other two pistons and connecting rods and everything which i thought at the time in fact i think i said on an earlier podcast that it was just bodge engineering but now i think about it, i'm like that's freaking genius you just took that (laughs) that pendulum weight that they used in the mono you know in in the the Ducati Supermono that I was just praising as being great engineering, and instead of having a, a separate balance shaft, you just built it into the piston. I'm like, I'm suddenly thinking, that's
2: that's <laughs> really innovative. That's really genius. The, the only thing from an engineering standpoint, the problem with that is that's a lot of weight at the top of your stroke to be that's true. Having it's, move around. That's it's a dec- lot of stress on, on your and
0: accelerating. Yeah, yeah, which. A pendulum does, but it's not part of your combustion chamber. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And they didn't do it on the, uh, what is it? The NS400R. When they built the 400cc version of that, they said, eh, it's out of balance. Who cares? Because the yeah, point is, good- in the real world, between balance shaft, rubber mounting, uh, All the vibration you get from transmission and the clutch mat. People don't realize how much vibration you get if you have an unbalanced clutch basket because that's a massive amount of weight. If that's not perfectly uh, concentric and all those clutch plates and the pressure plate and that basket is vibrating the least little bit, you have an incredibly buzzy motorcycle Regardless of how your cylinders are oriented. so yeah,
1: And you got to think about the RPMs that motorcycle engines turn, too. When you're slightly out of balance, but you're turning 10,000-plus RPMs, it really intensifies. And it's just like having an out-of-balance flywheel. Um, it can cause a lot of vibration, even just slightly out of balance.
0: Well, I had somebody tell me that blueprinting and balancing a 600 Supersport motor can gain you 5 horsepower.
2: That to Theorette, me yes that, but, that just blows me away, but that's what what that really comes from though, is more not so much the balancing part, but it's checking all your bearing clearances and then setting up for a looser tolerance so that there's less friction in okay. your bearings and then and then so that's and also that, that's also things where it comes like from.
0: making sure your cams are degreed perfectly which they're yes, not exactly. in the family and stuff but but even so uh i've been told that a blueprint engine is is remarkable
1: oh it's way how, smoother how smooth it is because
0: yeah. you've done all that and even things like um you know just making sure on a two stroke that the hole that the crank shaft goes into each of your you know you they're pressed together just a fraction you know m- fractions of a millimeter off when that bob weight starts swinging and it's not going in a perfect circle you just end up with all kinds of vibration that you can eliminate just by machining those things one at a time and making sure they're perfect rather than coming off an assembly line and just getting eh, good enough for production
1: yeah so, so an so- rz 350 crankshaft when they're being assembled on the the inside bearing the main bearing on the outsides when you're assembling the crankshaft you should, the. I think the spec is something like two thousandths of movement on the inside of the, I should say, like the outside crankshaft wheels on the inside where the main bearing is, you should have less than two thousandths movement up and down. That means you can be out of phase by two thousandths of an inch at the actual uh, center line. Mm-hmm. And on the outside, it's about four thousandths of an inch, but there's a pretty tremendous difference when you take that. And that's not a lot of movement. But if you can make it a half a thou of an inch all the way through that center line, it's you can f- feel quite a bit of difference. And then also, I've seen crankshafts that were not put together properly were at the outside of it, especially on the flywheel side. If it is six or eight thousandths of an inch, you're... Your flywheel can be moving up and down, and you will develop a crack on the inside of the outer crankshaft wheel, and it will fracture, and your crankshaft will come apart. Wow. Even if it's only a few thousandths out of balance.
2: I uh, I remember from when I was covering the AMA uh, road race series, and I don't remember which rider it was. And I seen and in the back of my head it's it was one of the someone who was riding for Arian. Um, but his primary bike was essentially put together, well, not only by Arian, but had the good HRC parts, or it had the HRC motor or something like that um for super sport. And then his backup bike was was literally almost a bone stock engine. And this isn't quite what he said, but I think the gist of it was it's like the difference between going between sleeping in silk sheets and, and burlap yeah. sack. I mean, that's the difference between an engine that's put together and, and blueprint with all, with the tolerances being optimal and the crank you know and 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 all the all your settings correct versus just a stock engine that's essentially off the showroom floor so yeah
0: uh, just before we wrap up going back to what originally prompted me to want to talk about V4s when I was reading about the VFR 1200 uh, <laughs> it, it's it's actually lighter than the old 800 number or 800 VFR 800 motor and for being a 1200 to make it lighter and smaller than the 800 I was amazed I didn't realize it's not a 90 degree V it's a 76 degree V with offset crank pins the way they did like in the Shadow and the Suzuki Intruder to make it mimic a 90 degree balance with a sh- with a narrower angle and uh I have to admit I haven't paid attention to to V4's uh, just because I'm not into, uh, real hardcore sport bikes and they never really interested me. Reading about the Cross Tour, the VFR 1200X, I could be real interested in that bike. And now that I've heard so many things, really good things from my friend that's got the Africa Twin about the, uh, DCT, I mm-hmm. could go for that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's opening my eyes. Good. Well. We need to wrap it up. I uh, know, Garrett, you need to take off. Thank you, gentlemen. I always enjoy this.
1: Yeah, it's good yep. to hear you guys again. It's been a while.
0: Yeah. Yep. Sorry for being late. Well, all three of us got together this first time in a couple weeks. We've been able to do that. So. Yep. And hopefully we'll do this again next week, and hopefully all of our listeners will join us. Thanks, guys. Yep. Bye-bye.